Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is the podcast where I talk to people about the five things from their life that they would choose to preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they love, but they must also pick one thing that they loathe, something they'd like to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is the comedian and writer Joe Caulfield, who, as a young woman, spent some time playing drums in a rockabilly band until deciding that she wanted to go into comedy. She worked as a waitress during the day, saved her tips, bought a small mic and an amplifier, and opened her own comedy club. Having given herself two years to make it or quit, she was very soon the winner of the Laughter Funniest Woman Award, the Best Female Comedian and Best Compare at the Chortle Awards, and one of Channel 4's 100 Greatest Stand-Ups. She was also writing for Graham Norton, appearing regularly at major comedy clubs around the world, doing her own national tours and supporting other shows on their tours. She supported Rory Bremner, Graham Norton, of course, and Puppetry of the Penis. Joe has appeared in Never Mind the Buzzcocks, Mock the Week, Have I Got News for You, which she was also a warm-up artist for, Argumental, Michael McIntyre's Comedy Roadshow, and many other shows, and had her own Radio 4 show, It's That Joe Caulfield Again, which eventually, by the third series, became Joe Caulfield Won't Shut Up. She's a regular guest on a number of radio shows, such as Fred McCauley's show, The Now Show, and 2020. So, this is what Joe told me she treasures. Well, mostly. I hope you enjoy it. I'll start with the one that I think is sort of complicated because I think I won't know how quite how to say it. So I'm so I, I thought I'll put it as people, mm-hmm. and I would like to put in Patty Smith 
and also Iggy Pop. <laughs> and I'm sure they, they will get on. He's mellowed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, because they sort of represent, and it's not even, you know, they're a little before my time, but it's what they represent, which is that attitude of be in control of what you do. I know people wouldn't think of Iggy Pop as being in control, but I think he's had a wonderful long career mm. of doing things he wants to do. And the same with Patti Smith and always doing something and always working or saying, no, I'm having my family now and I'm going to write a book now. Or somebody's asked me to do a musical thing that I'm interested in. I'm going to do that. But always having principled, never chasing the dollar. Yeah. And she did say a wonderful thing. She said, if you keep doing the work, the work will become your currency, which I think is a great thing to remember. And it's just that way of always go back to, especially like as, as a stand-up, it's something, you know, you can get caught up in meetings and people blowing smoke in your ears and you can waste a lot of time. And then you realise, oh, it's your job to have meetings. <laughs> it's not my job to have meetings. This is just filling your day. And of course, you're going to encourage me because you want to have more meetings. But actually, you've just wasted like two years of my life on a thing that's never going to happen. And sometimes you get paid for that and that's fine. But it was also like, oh, but also the project went off in a way I didn't want it to go. So let's go back to the stand-up. Let's go back to what is funny about what happened today. Mm. And it's all people who do that. And also having a bit of self-respect sometimes in show business. <laughs> um, that, there's another guy and he told a great story, um, David Johansson, that was in the New York Dolls. And he's done some acting. And he said to me, they're hiring David Johansson. If you want me to be in your film, I'll be in your film. So he said he went along to a meeting in Hollywood and they gave him a script and they said, oh, and we'd just like to uh, you to read this. And he went, well, what do you mean read it? And he went, well, we just want to see if you can act. And he just went, you fucking act. <laughs> I just I love it. Because he was like, you know who I am. I'll do this. That's it. <laughs> if you don't want that, don't hire me. Yeah. And I thought that's so wonderful to just to know who you are and to uh, sometimes have bravery to say no, mm. to realize that's uh, also to know what's not you. You go, I'll be uncomfortable in that. That's just not my kind of thing. Yeah. Not out of fear, because sometimes you've got to do things you think, I don't know if I can do that. I'm afraid I'll do it. But sometimes you know, oh, that's what everything I hate. Don't do it because it's telly or because it's money. Mm. Um, so did you start to admire that attitude? having made the mistake? I think there's always been a part of me that's liked autonomy. Since I was little, like I used to make terrible perfume out of <laughs> flowers and sell it to my mum's friends. And I remember thinking, I said to my mum, and this was the old, you know, two Ps, two Ds it was then, and the sixpences. Mm. And I think I had like pound fifty, which was a lot of money. Yeah. So I was, and I remember saying to my mum, well, I got £1.50, so I'll be able to get my own food soon. You know, like, <laughs> that I was going to, and I was about seven, and I was going to be self-sufficient. Yeah. And there's a part of me that's always like that, and I've always sort of done that. I don't know why I've always followed a, a peculiar path. Like, I just left home. I come from, you know, an uh, Air Force family, quite regimented, and I just left home, went to London, Got a job as a breakfast waitress because it had accommodation. And I thought, well, I'm sorted for life. <laughs> I've got somewhere to live and a job. And it seems sort of simple. And I only work in the morning. Yes. <laughs> Until I realised, oh, a breakfast waitress has to get up five o'clock and I only got in at four. So this isn't going to work. <laughs> so I think 
the concentrate on standard did come from not mistakes, but I suppose being led on by people where I went, I don't want them controlling my life. I don't want whether you're interested because I seem like the latest thing Mm. to be the control of my life because they'll always move on to the latest thing. And I have found that I've got stuff from just keeping my head down and going, I'm going to do another hour of stand-up and keep doing that and and changing. I think that's important as you get older as well. And I think there are people that have done different things. You know, Iggy Pop's done some terrible albums, but, (laughs) you know, some of them I wouldn't listen to, but others are are very interesting. You know, he said somebody, they were doing the music behind, they wanted me to read the poetry, so I'll do it. And you go, oh, some of that is really interesting. Mm. But at least you kind of thought, I'll try something else. Let's keep moving forward. Yeah. I mean, people might describe it as ego, the fact of this is what I want to do, I'm going to do it, whether you like it or not. But in fact, I think that having confidence in something that you find amusing or you find moving or you find enjoyable to listen to when you actually perform it, well, then that's fine, that's you. And if other people then join in, all well and good. But actually, the idea is, I enjoy this, I find this funny, or this, I think, is a good thing to talk about. So I'm going to. Yes. And then you hope that people come with you. Yes, absolutely. It's funny because I don't, isn't it strange you say ego? Because I don't think of it as ego. I think of it as ego if somebody is, you know, we've all seen examples of somebody who is very, very famous. So they're given everything. So they say, would you like to do a film? Would you like to do a musical? Would you like to dance? Would you like to do this? And they say yes to everything. And you go, oh, I don't know if you can do all of those things. That may be ego. (laughs) But I always think of it as I'm, now, this makes me sound very holier than thou now, because I'm think, I think of it as I'm trying to give something. You know, there's certain things I'm, I, you know, I know I can make people laugh, so I'm trying to give you that thing mm. that I can do. And, you know, fuck, it took me long enough to find the thing yeah. as well. You know, I did lots of other bits and bobs and that before I found stand-up and went, oh, I think this is the thing yeah. that I could give to people. Well, that's a good thing, I think. You can argue quite openly, Hmm. that you have experience of having done that and you can do it. And therefore, you know, I'm going to continue trying to do it. And I think this is the best way to do it. And the idea of all those people in rooms saying, oh, no, actually, do you know what? I think it would probably work better if you did this. And you say, but you don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing worse, is Mm -hmm. there? And you go, I've got to keep quiet, but I know I'm going to have to listen to your opinions. (laughs) Um, And it's also, it's sort of always, I mean, there are some great people who I respect, but there are some other people where you go, this is actually insulting because you're just saying the first thing off the top of your head. Do you not think that I thought of that and rejected it? You know, I've had 10 versions of this before you see it. But they never think that, you know, because it's their job to say something. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. They have to no, say something. absolutely. That is their yeah. job. It's weird, isn't it? There yeah. are whole rooms yeah. of people and office blocks all over London and all over the yeah. world, I suppose, full of people whose job it is to get together in rooms and discuss things without necessarily coming to any conclusions. Exactly. And I've heard people say that um, through lockdown, because they're having meetings on Zoom, meetings are much quicker. People kind of edit themselves more in a Zoom. I mean, I suppose also if the option is, well, I can end this meeting now and then I can go and sit in my garden. Yes. (laughs) Or I can end this meeting now and go and sit in another office. Yes. So you think, well, I've got to be here anyway, so I might as well keep going. 
We've all been in rooms like that. Yeah, a meeting is a distraction. It's a bit like at school going, we're going to do, oh, we're going to do outside play, um, <laughs> you know, for biology and look at flowers. But really, you're going, great, we're not in the classroom. And I think that's probably what meetings are in proper jobs, isn't yes. it? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> let's stay in the meeting room. I wonder how many Zoom meetings Patty Smith and Iggy Pop have done. Yes, I think it's, it is a punk rock attitude of thinking, hey, you know, I can have a go at this. But then if I work hard, I might be good at it. Mm. But uh, not allowing yourself to be controlled by people who you don't respect. Yes. It's different if you respect people and think, oh, I really would like your opinion. Yes, and actually those people are usually people who sit back and listen and then will say, well, what's good about this is this, this, this and this, but that I don't think will work. Mm. And my idea for that is this. What do you think? And comics do that to each other as well. Well, they might go, oh, that bit you do, what about? And there will always be, you've probably thought of this, but uh, what do you think? And you go, oh, that's perfect. I will put that in, yes. you know, or add that. But it's also that feeling of satisfaction of, you know, it's like making something if you have a new routine or a joke. It's the same as sort of any sort of craftsperson who's gone, oh, I've just whittled this, <laughs> you know, I, and look at it. Oh, great, that. And then you put it out there and if they laugh and you go, oh, that's lovely, and put that on the shelf, that's another thing I've whittled that I can use and bring out any time I like. I mean, most people doing stand-up is because they love making people laugh but also being with people that make them laugh. And you have certain people that make you funnier as well. <laughs> I remember years ago when I saw Jack D, he was the person that made me go, oh, I might be able to do this because he didn't seem to be doing jokes. And that's what I'd seen. He seemed to be just complaining and moaning <laughs> to, like the audience were like, we're his friends. And yeah. that's what I've always kept in my head. And I think Dave Allen was like that. It was like he was chatting with his friends. And it's like, if I can, the audience can make me feel like I'm the way I, I chat with the friends who make me feel funny. Mm. You know, if you can feel that when you're on stage, then that's, you're in a special place. Yeah, I bet. All right, we will put Iggy Pop yeah. and Patty Smith <laughs> together in a room and let's hope they forgive us. Yeah. <laughs> and they will go into the time capsule. So that's your first thing. Yeah, that's my first thing. But he also, if you ever hear him talk, he is a real gent. There's a lovely interview with him and Will Self, which I recommend. And uh, Will Self is being his usual, you know, using long words and being ultra clever <laughs> and putting that on to Iggy, saying, you know, you were this and that and the other. And Iggy just very, he says... Ah, oh, I didn't quite understand that word. What does that word mean? Ah, oh, and he thinks about it, but he's not ashamed to say, I don't know, which is a brilliant thing. Yeah. And he's you're kind of, oh, you're a wise old smackhead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my second thing is sort of newish to me is my garden. Because I've never had a garden before um, when I was in London. And then we moved to Edinburgh. We live in Leith. And first place we lived in Edinburgh, there was a shared garden and I started to do the garden up because nobody had done it <laughs> and there were students living there and I remember one of them coming down and they saw me and they went oh you're the and there was a slight pause and then she said lady who does the garden and I put in my head I went oh crazy lady who does the garden <laughs> and I sort of started to do it and I had a sense memory of gardening because my dad was a big gardener and I always been playing the garden he would be always gardening and it was, I felt like, oh, you know, when you use tools and I felt, oh, I kind of feel like I know how to do this mm. because I remember my dad doing this. And so then we moved to Leith and I have a little garden, just the right size, I think, for me. And I absolutely love it. And it's the only place, and I think most people have a thing like this, where I don't think. 
I genuinely, it is that zen, if you want to call it that, where I just think about, oh, I'm putting these in. And as I'm putting these in, I'm thinking, oh, the grass needs cutting. Oh, I might deadhead that. That's all I'm thinking about is what I'm doing. Mm. And then my husband says, here, watch me. And he goes, well, you're just sitting and looking at it. And I'm like, I can. <laughs> As it, and I'll do it all day long. I look out the window and just look at it. It's like, he's going, it's not doing anything different. I was going, but I'm not even thinking that. I'm just looking and looking at that bush that I put in. And, and I've put, I mean, the garden was nothing when we got here. So I've dug it up. And that was another thing. I realised I like physical work outside, you know, that that makes me feel tired in a lovely way and I'll just have a go. Like I thought, I need some flower beds. I'm just, I don't know how to dig up lawn. I'll just do it, you know. <laughs> oh, and then you can, you know, Google everything and it'll say the best way to do this or the best way to do that. And my reaction to that normally is, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if I have to do all of those steps. I'm a great one for that. I think I can just go straight to the last bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and just, and huge, huge satisfaction and kind of, <laughs> sort of, kind of thinking like it's a miracle when you put uh, all your bulbs in, in autumn, and then they come up in the spring. You're going, oh my God. It is though, it is. It's amazing. But do you ever do that thing of photographing things quite early on? And then you look back at the photograph and think, my God, how the hell did that turn into that? Look at it. I mean, I grow vegetables, so mm. I'm very aware of the growing process. Yes, that's incredible. See, I don't do vegetables because I feel I don't have enough space and they're not pretty. <laughs> and I want it to look nice. Mm. And also, it's a sort of community that's developed, especially over lockdown, because we live in these, like, I suppose they would be not sort of workmen's cottages. Well, they're not workmen. They're not like cottages. They're villas, mm. Victorian, but we're in the docks area. And so the gardens had low Victorian fences and most people have put up big fences and the gardens are fenced in. But when we moved in, very lovely old lady went, oh, you could put up a fence if you want, but you'll find you don't get so much sun. So it was a very passive-aggressive way of saying we'd rather you didn't put up a fence. And we didn't. And now, with four gardens with no fences except the tiny Victorian one, so we all enjoy each other's gardens. Yes. So we have a lot of outside conversations about gardens, sharing bulbs, you know, didn't work in my garden, try that and your sunny bit there. Mm -hmm. And that's been really lovely. And also because we're all all ages. My neighbour on one side is 82, American, who's settled here. And then a lady who's young, near Shirley, 30s with a baby. And then one, another woman who's about my age. Um, all various degrees of gardening skills as well. <laughs> but it's it's... That has been really nice, to build those friendships over gardening. It's strange, isn't it, that people think that putting up a big fence between you and someone else will keep that person out of your life. Yeah. You'll hear them. Yeah, it's not soundproofed, is it? But you won't be able to communicate with them. You won't be able to join in the conversation. Yeah, and I think we're sort of aware if somebody wants privacy, especially my neighbour who's got a little girl, like she'll go, no, Joe's resting. She doesn't always want to play. <laughs> her daughter's like five, but she'll just come into my garden and play. Great. Um, 
Um, and, and that's often quite a little nice break from gardening, so I'm happy to play. The other day, she had a balloon, and we were playing Keep the Balloon Up. Mm. And then she said to me, I'm quite tired now, Joe. Do you want to play on your own? Are you okay to play on your own? <laughs> oh, bless her. <laughs> and I was like, going, do you know, I'm really enjoying this balloon game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just leave it with me. Yeah. I'll be okay. Yeah. Oh, lovely. But I think, yeah, the gardening, it's really added something that sort of, you know, all the sort of cliches of peace and being outside. I don't mind in all weathers, I'll do it, because mm. you soon get warm, don't you? Yeah. And I like the tools as well. Very much like tools and hanging them. I've got a nice thing where I hang them now. Oh, oh it's gorgeous. Mm. I laid a patio a couple of years ago. <gasps> oh, I, I so regret that it ever finished as a job. I could have kept mm. doing it for the rest of my life. And I would do it in all weathers. It was freezing when I started. And I was digging it out, levelling it. You know, making sure it had a slight gradient on it so the water would run away. I did it really carefully. And then I'm yeah. lugging around these great amounts of sand and cement and paving stones. I tell you, Joe, by the time I finished, I was ripped. Yeah. <laughs> God, I've never looked so good. And is it still good, the patio? The patio's good, not me. Yeah. The patio has not sagged at all, and I have. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. What I did, because it was easier, a comedian friend, Ian Moore, who lives in France, and they have a lot of those cream stones. That, and I thought, oh, that looks really French. I want a bit that looks like that. So I just dug up another bit of my grass and then tried to level it. See, I didn't do the levelling well enough. But I did then line it and then just bought loads of cream. But that thing of lugging those bags of stones, because they're heavy, and then putting them out and levelling it, that was hugely satisfying and I love it. And I've got a little sort of what I think is a French looking chair because it's got a bit of wrought iron work. And that's my, <laughs> and I have some lavender and there's my little French bit. Yeah. yeah. Bonjour, you say to the neighbours. <laughs> yeah, that's where I drink wine. Yeah. <laughs> very good. Well, I'm very keen to put gardening into the time capsule for you. Mm. Okay, that's two items. What's number three? Uh, number three, or I can show I a little model of it physically, mm -hmm. is this. I don't know if you recognise it. I'm oh, sure I you do. do. Yes, the yes. Uh, Harland and Wolf, isn't it? That's it. It's the yeah. Harland and Wolf yellow crane with the red bit from the docks at Belfast. Yes. And whenever I see that, and weirdly there's been quite a few detective things filmed in Northern Ireland recently, and you see that shot and you always see these cranes. And all my parents' family are from Northern Ireland. Oh. And my dad grew up in Belfast. And on my mum's side, um, I'd found out recently, three of her great uncles all worked for Harland and Wolf in stores and things. And when you, when you go to the Titanic Museum, and you, what I found, what rooms I really liked, is where they're doing the technical drawing for the ships. Mm. And it's just benches and benches and benches of really skilled people doing really intricate work. And it was kind of amazing. And then when I found out that, you know, some of our ancestors had worked there, I thought, like, oh, I've always loved this. And I've always loved ports. <laughs> and uh, weirdly, what I like is the sort of industrialness of them. Like when we went to Hamburg, I was like, oh, there's a container port. I love a container port. <laughs> and went to Seattle, went on a boat trip around the container port. And they were saying, oh, these are some of the biggest cranes in the world. And then they started telling me something about flora and fauna. I was like, tell me about the cranes. And I don't know what it is. And then weirdly that I ended up moving to Leith, which used to be the dock area. And there are still docks and still boats. And I, I don't quite know what it is. 
And also when you travel, like this comedian, like I've done gigs in Singapore, and I think it's like, oh, they're the same containers uh. that I've seen in Hull or near Grimsby where the big port is. Mm. And they're the same ones and they're all going around the world. And so that, for some reason, does interest me. But you didn't grow up anywhere near a port, did you? No, I grew up in the Air Force. So we're mostly, um, we're mostly east coast of England on flatland. <laughs> so they're spread <laughs> as airfields. So didn't grow up anywhere near one. My brother and sister were both born in Northern Ireland and we would go back every summer. So it's also that, that it's full of then the warmth I have for my cousins mm. who are the best talkers in the world and my Auntie Mary, who's now sadly passed away, being with them and just sitting and realising they were different. To, my mum was different when she was with them as well. My mum was suddenly Northern Irish and all chat, 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 chat. Whereas in the Air Force, I think she was a bit more, I've got to act like an officer's wife now mm-hmm. and not be quite so Northern Irish. And they're great talkers. And they could talk, it's that way. And you go, why are they great talkers? And sometimes it's knowledge and sometimes it's just a gift, isn't it? Like my Auntie Mary could have told you about getting the new cups for the church. You know, it could be a two hour long story and you will be in hysterics (laughs) and riveted, you know, and it's just that thing going, it's just a gift. And a lot of her kids have that gift. Yeah. And I was staying at my cousin Francis last year around Brexit time. And my cousin Peter was over and... My Francis took my mum out to the theatre for the night and they live in the country, sort of middle of nowhere. But it's busy country. There's always people coming in and out. And there's all and there's a sort of they're teachers. She's a nurse, she's a teacher. So they've got jobs. Mm. But yet everything there's a sort of a black market currency. I'll teach your kid, you come and do the plumbing. Somebody's brought round some eggs, he's fixed the car. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of sort of that goes on. Um, like she took my mum to the theatre and I remember sitting in the kitchen having tea. It's a, a dry house, so don't drink. Uh, my cousin took the pledge. And, uh, and I was sitting on a chair and my cousin and her husband, Joe, we were talking about Brexit. And my cousin Peter is just brilliant and sort of knows about everything. And my mum came back four hours later and she's like, what have you been doing? And I said, I've sat in this chair and talked. <laughs> We've talked like with no drink, just tea for four hours into the intricacies of Brexit, how it will affect the troubles and all of that. And it was just amazing. Mm. Great conversation. I'm sort of exhausted (laughs) because I'm not used to a conversation going on that long where you're not drunk. (laughs) And also where there's not some distraction where you have to go, oh, we can't just sit here. We need to be doing something or other or move. But no, same chair in the kitchen. The only time anyone got up was to, you know, stew some more really strong tea and they're otherwise just talking. Because actually the skill of talking is listening Mm. and it's a skill that the Irish have. They will pick up on something that you've said and run with it. Their conversation is furthered by what you say rather than just by what they want to say. Yes, I think so, because they are really listening, because I like the way they'll always go, oh, now, Joe, uh, interesting, yeah. And they'll pick up on your point, and you have to earn your place a bit as well. I think that's the other thing that um, maybe has gone towards the stand-up, was that um, these people are so good at talking. Whatever you're going to say better be quite good, or mm-hmm. why would you have time at the table with the conversation? So it's about sort of honing your conversation as well. Yes. And I remember... I remember going to New York to a storytelling night. We were in New York and my friend, she does that storytelling. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> I wouldn't tell these in a pub to mates, let alone on stage. 
you know, you've got to get these stories tighter and have a reason and have something to offer that we can't offer to each other. No. So, it's, yeah, and I have a huge warmth for Northern Ireland. And also it's a thing people don't think about me because I know they think I'm very English. Mm. So I know it's always a surprise to people who go, and I said, no, I'm the only one not born in Northern Ireland, got my Irish passport with Brexit immediately. <laughs> um, and the, uh, when I hear the voice, if I hear a Northern Irish accent, that fills me with a sort of warmth and love as well that will always be there. It's fantastic. Yeah. Also, all over Ireland have come across the most incredible skill with language, the wit of it. A tramp once stopped me in the middle of the night and said, mm. uh, could you spare a cigarette? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. And he said, oh, bloody hell. He said, if you can spare it that easily, I'll have the whole fucking packet. I did sit down and talk to this man because you thought, well, that's a real wit and that's a Mm. brilliant way to see the world. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And I like all the intrigue of it as well. You know, my cousins, they always tell tell Jo some of the stories she wants to hear, you know, which is always about, you know, gun running and smuggling (laughs) and all sorts of nonsense like that. Um, I mean, my cousins who are my age, of course, their whole lives were the troubles. Mm. So very different growing up and being, you know, as teenagers being searched by paratroopers and, you know, not nice things happening. Yet, you know, we can have a brilliant relationship. Even though as kids, we would go over and go, we'd be the English cousins. I was like, there's an edge to the way they say that, I feel. <laughs> Do not put khaki on. That was, the, yeah. that was the attitude at the time. I remember being in Belfast during the Troubles and having to organise a children's theatre show. And in order to do it, I had to pick up a van to take the stuff around. So I picked up this unmarked white van, drove it around Belfast for a bit, and then got lost. And so I pulled up by the side of the road, and there was a metallic tap on the window. And I wound it down, and there was a machine gun pointing at me. And a policeman saying, I don't think you should park outside that Falls Road police station. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. I know there's a terrible accent, but... He was so polite. He obviously realised I was an idiot. Yes. Oh, well, all right. I will put the Holland and Wolf cranes. The cranes, yes, as a symbol. Towering above you. Yeah. They go into the time capsule. Brilliant. All right, Joe, we've got two items left. Isn't Joe lovely? Okay, we'll be back soon to hear what else she chooses for her time capsule. In the meantime, though, we have to make room on this podcast for some adverts. We'll see you in a min. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more 
and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome back to My Time Capsule with Joe Caulfield. So let's find out what the next thing is that Joe would like to put in her time capsule. Yes, my next thing is YouTube because I found that uh, I can find on there a particular type of films that I like because somebody will have always put them up there. So if I do have time, I'll go, I'm going to watch one of my films. And my films are, now I am terrible for, I always say I'm not a completist. Like if you say, oh, what's your best album? I I don't know. It would be an album made up of different songs by different people. Mm. I'm not great at remembering names and stuff of films, but it's mostly films from about 1930. The American ones stopped being interesting about 1948. And there's a really different feel to films. And somebody has always, uh, nearly always put them up on, on YouTube and you can find them. I usually just type in film noir, although a lot of them aren't film noir. But what they are, they're more realistic. It's when uh, they're grittier. A great example, I think, is the Gary Cooper, Mr. Deeds Goes to Washington. Mm. Because this is the little man of America against the business and entrenched society. And they were on his side. But after the war, Hollywood changed and became, you have to be on the side of business Mm. and conservatism. But this film is like, it's a different America. And it's like, God, God, if they hadn't gone that other way, what a different country it could have been. It could have been a sort of capitalist, socialist dream country. And it's a really beautiful and surprising film because you're like, is this America? But there's a lot of films like that. And they show the poverty and the, you know, that people were living in at that time and the difference between the rich and the poor. But they're on the poor side and you're not judged for being poor. Yes. As it became, you know, evangelicals and Christians kind of would then it became, oh, we can judge people for being poor. Being rich is a good thing. And women's parts are completely different. That's what's great. There was a film, and I was looking at going, oh, it's a bit shocking. Daisy Kenyon with Joan Crawford. This, I think it's 1947. And she is a single woman, well, in that she lives on her own. She has a career. She's a dress designer. She has a sex life that you know about. So she's having an affair with married man, Dana Andrews. Which you know means they're having sex. There's something about the way they say married man that makes you go, well, she's having sex with him. (laughs) And then she also falls in love with Henry Fonda, who goes off to war, comes back a bit damaged by the war. Mm. And she sort of has to choose between the two and this drama. But it's the fact that, wow, she's she's a, a woman with a proper life. They hadn't put them back in the kitchen. Like in the 50s, they put women back in a certain place and then they have to buy lots of products, basically, for their house. And she's not like that. And then there was another film, again, by chance, I put it in, and it's um, Ida Lupino and Jean Gabin. I think it's called Moon Moon Tide, and it's sort of set on the Pacific coast. He's a seaman. She's homeless. (laughs) Um, And he's a drunk. And the opening of that film is the best drunk scene I've ever seen. Because he's really drunk, but he's a likable drunk. You know the way some people go, oh, they're a great drunk. Uh, But he still gets in fights. And part of it is he might have killed somebody in a previous drunken escapade. And it's so that a bit of it is quite dark. 
but it's also a beautiful love story between them. She's this homeless girl, mm. but it's not seedy in any way. And it's Fritz Lang, and it looks beautiful because it looks like paintings. It just looks not like films. <laughs> but I think there's a, there's a heart in them that isn't in other films. There was a British one I watched recently, which was must be early 50s, Turn the Key Softly. What a great title. And it's three women leaving prison on the same day. It's a British film, and you see, it's like the beginning of Porridge, where you see that old-fashioned Wormwood Scrubs-like prison. Yeah. And they come out. One is a sort of, it's not Celia Johnson, but she's that sort of an actress. One is an older lady, and one is a young Joan Collins playing the flighty girl. (laughs) Brilliant. Um, And it's just that day, the day they leave, and what happens to them, and their connections. And it's, again, you go, oh, wow. It would be equally interesting if it was men. Mm. But it's the fact that at that time, they would go, no, people will watch women in our film. Yes. Uh, whereas now I go, they, there was a, such a long period. Now they are making more female films. Well, they just didn't. It must have been influenced by that great influx of European filmmakers, you know, running away from Germany, as it were. Yeah, and but also that sort of immigrant story of everybody was struggling. So people weren't coming in, you know, with a comfortable background. And I think that's why the, I find the actors very interesting. Mm. Because there's things in their faces, even you know, they, even though they're young, even very young actors, they find their faces interesting to look at. Yeah. You know, there's struggle there. Mm. But, I mean, there's people like Catherine Hepburn who came from sort of American aristocracy, but I still find her interesting because I think her fight is being a woman in that world. Mm. But there's, you know, people like um, Robert Mitchum. Oh, fantastic. Ah, oh, I mean, what an actor. And you just go, I can't stop looking at your face. No. There's so much going on, but tough life. Yeah, yeah. My favourite is uh, Spencer Tracy. Yes. Who I just adore. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the McCarthy trials came along and... Yes, and that all changed it. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that had a lot to do with changing it. But, but also that thing was they wanted to sell stuff. And it became about you, you, you want this life. We don't want to see the struggling people. We want to see the people who have reached it, and that's what you've got to get to. No. People suddenly becoming incredibly rich through something. yeah. And what is also great is that you can find, it used to be a real struggle. You'd be sort of going around video shops to find who's got old films. Mm. And now... There they are. There's just a whole world of films with a very different feel. Mm. And I absolutely love them. And that that's my sort of treat to myself if I think, well, I've done all the gardening. Yeah. So you just type in film noir and then you just pick one. Yeah, and I pick one. And if it's somebody I like, I put up that then that actor or something, and then you'll find some other things. And sometimes I'll watch for a couple of minutes and then go, hmm, that one's a bit not quite me, uh, and then start another one. Or oh, a lovely treat is always finding a Cary Grant I haven't seen. Oh. And I found another one the other day, a Penny Serenade, about a couple who lose a baby. Um. I mean, it was really heartfelt, and he does an amazing speech when they adopt a child, and then the child's taken away from them. And he does this, you know, not like Cary Grant, because he's emotional. Yeah. And it's like, wow, really great. Because he always did that sort of, I'm not really in the film acting, which I love. (laughs) That's Cary Grant. But this was, he's much younger in this. And he's really, you know, it's all heart. Yeah, it's beautiful. The the other thing is I don't see many modern films. And I think a lot of times people see modern films because they go, oh, have you seen such and such? A lot of my friends watch all the bloody Marvel comic films that I've no interest in. 
And then they go, what have you seen? And I go, have you seen Penny's Serenade with Irene Dunn? <laughs> End of conversation. Nobody's seen it or is interested. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> it's black and white. You'll really like it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's black and white, but really grainy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how brilliant. You've given me the desire to go and spend the afternoon not in the sun. Oh, you will love it. You will. It's a whole gorgeous... And I know you'll feel what is the difference. Mm in the attitude of the filmmakers. I might just dip into It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, yes, that's that. Yeah, that's a classic of it. It really is, isn't it? When you you forget that what they're arguing is he could have joined the very rich man and made himself wealthy and made his family safe. He chooses not to. He chooses to, in a way, go down the moral route of, no, these people need me. And that's the thing that leads to his ruin. Yes. He feels he's not a success and then he's shown what the world is like if he hadn't been there. And it's just the most gorgeous thing, the slow realisation that actually little things have a large effect on many people's lives. And that's exactly the fight that is in these films, and it's so strange how it was then switched. Mm. God, how brilliant. All right, Mm. well, in that case, we should take the institution of YouTube and put it in there just so that you can look it up anytime you like. Yes. (laughs) That's fantastic, Joe. Well, we've got one item left which is something you want to get rid of. Oh, oh, Ah. oh, I've got an extra one then, because I thought I had to have five things I wanted to keep. Oh, well, do you know what? I don't give a damn about rules. Oh. (laughs) So if you've got five things you want to keep and one more, then I'd love to hear it. Let's do the fifth thing. This is a moment of serendipity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting you were saying earlier about as you get older, lovely moments are also tinged with loss and sadness um, because mm. this is about my sister who died five years ago from cancer. And in the 80s, when, which I also think I nearly put in, as I was going to say London in the 80s when it was cheap and <laughs> exciting because it was cheap. But in the yeah. 80s, she worked as the cleaner of the artist Bridget Riley. She put an ad in, wanted a cleaner, housekeeper. She had to make meals for the artists working in the studio. And the house is all all white, it's all whitewashed. And she had to keep everything white. And she applied for the job and got it. And she got a little flat at the top of the house. And my sister was a writer. And this was a thing that Bridget, she said, I don't want you to devote yourself to me. The job needs to be done. And you need to need a job because I need the work done but I also want you to pursue whatever is the thing you're pursuing. So as long as the stairs were cleaned and meals were made, then Annie could write as much, you know, what she wanted and, you know, had a great place to live in the middle of London. And it was a a wonderful time. And also, I didn't know who Bridget Riley was, but I remember the house and going to the house and going, this house is fabulous. But, you know, (laughs) these paintings, seeing her big paintings with massive stripes everywhere, and I would go past the workroom where the people were doing the stripes and up to see Annie up at the top. And sometimes we would drink Bridget's wine when she was away and then have to replace it and then go, oh, fuck, that wine's really expensive. I don't think we could replace it. Can you mind if I ask how old mm. you were in comparison to your sister? What's the difference between Oh, I'm age? five years younger. Right. Yeah. Um, so my sister was 57 and I'm 57 now, which mm. feels a very significant year. You know, like when I'm 58 in September... My brother felt the same when he turned 58. You go, this is bonus time now. Right. Because she didn't get that time. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yeah, so I did move and I stayed with her when I moved down. That's what, what 17. I go, oh, I'll go and stay with Annie because um, that sounds great in London. And then 
she was like, well, you'll have to get a job. And that's when I got the job as a breakfast waitress and <laughs> got accommodation. Yeah. So she was already here and she did a lot of it. You know, she was a writer, she playwright, and she did a lot, a lot of radio plays later on in life. When she was at Bridget, she was putting on plays and it was a very exciting time. Like, I was in a band, I was in a rockabilly band. <laughs> so it was an exciting time of people just doing stuff, yeah. getting, you know, nobody had any money, but you were able to put on fringe theatre or whatever. And it was very useful that she had that space and somewhere to live the kind of you know Virginia Woolf room of one's own that Mm. she had and she could write but she had enough money to live and she had a sort of a job and it was then she got a job then at the Riverside Studios as a script reader and started to write for television and then she left Bridget's but they always remained friends over the years and I was in London working and I was just walking by the Haywood Gallery, and it said Bridget Riley Exhibition. And I kind of, you know, caught, like my heart just went and I sort of teared up immediately, just like, oh, my God, Bridget Riley means so much. And Bridget came to the funeral and she wrote the most beautiful letter to my mum with the, the black round, the letter, proper mourning letter, oh, which wow. was a beautiful handwriting, of course, mm. which is artistic. And that meant so much to my mother because they're nearly the same age, which is strange. And I thought, oh, I want to go to this. And so I text Martin, my sister's partner, and said, it's a Bridget Riley exhibition. I'm going to go on Saturday. Will I get you a ticket? And he said, yes, I definitely. Let's do it. Let's go. Hmm. So we went. And I just thought, I just have to see it. It was such a, such a part of her life and mine that I remember so well. And we were walking around. And then I looked down and there was a woman in a chair, a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, my God, it's Bridget. She was there and I I thought, I immediately wanted to speak to her. She was with a couple of friends and then some people were coming up to her. She was looking at one of her paintings and we'd gone early in the morning. And I thought, oh, don't bother her. And then I thought, no, do bother her because we're connected. And I know she won't mind because she was so lovely at the funeral. So I just went up and I said, oh, Bridget, I don't know if you remember me. And she was so wonderful. And she grabbed my hand. She kept holding my hand the whole time. She goes, of course I do. You're Annie's sister. You're so like her. And then she introduced me to her friends and she she talked about Annie in the most lovely way where she described when she met her. And she said, she goes, and this girl came to the door and she had spiky yellow hair with a blue streak and she had the most amazing silver suitcase. And I thought... Who has a silver suitcase? She. This is the way Bridget talks. She's sort of posh. She goes, she's rather marvellous. And also she's clearly decided that she's already got the job because she's got her suitcase. Oh, how so she went, so I had to give it to her. And then she also said, and she said, Nanny was a writer and she was very clever. And then she said, and I do remember, she'd been with him about six months. And she just said to me, Bridget, I don't quite understand it. All of your paintings... They're all exactly the same. <laughs> and Bridget just thought that was really funny. And she said, so I showed her how they were, they were different to each other. But I don't think Annie saw it, but, um, but it did make me think about them again because I thought I don't want people to think they're all the same. Oh, and God. she was so wonderful. And it was, you know, serendipity is the only way I can say that we were there at that time that she was there. And it felt weirdly like some sort of closure as well because I thought... Bridget will not live forever, but I've had this moment with her 
reconnecting about Annie. Mm. And then I'm sure the next thing will be some, you know, famous writer, uh, artist Bridget Riley dies. And I will feel for Bridget and feel for how much she helped Annie, but also that she was so generous to say what Annie gave her mm. as well. And then we sort of let her go and say, you know, we'll, we'll go. And we went around and it was funny, it was on the next floor where the paintings were that I remember, which are, they're called the Egyptians. And they're all the colours from her place. She has a place in Provence and it's all those soft pinks and purples. And I saw them, this huge, I remember seeing painted and it was just just amazing just look at them and see how they're different <laughs> to each other. And, and then we came round again and she was gone. And it was magical. Mm. It was really magical. Uh, yeah. Well, there's a real lesson from that. And in fact, it is a lesson that crops up again and again when I'm talking to people, which is that I've not had anybody say to me, shall I go up and talk to them or shall I do this? Yeah. I've not had one person say, and I did, and God, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> yeah, and they hated me. But I've had a number of people say, and oh, I wish I'd done that. Yeah, and you're right, that thing. I hadn't thought of it like that. Yeah, if you have that feeling, go do it. Mm. Yeah. And if it goes badly, it goes badly. But like you say, I've never heard of it going badly. No, although I have read about you, that you did a thing on Radio 4 where you were talking about your sister hitching around Europe with her. Oh, yes. <laughs> which sounded to me like the most terrifying thing. What the hell were you playing at? What a ridiculous idea. But she was my big sister, so I always thought Annie knew best. And it was only as I sort of went along that I thought, oh, she never thinks anything through. <laughs> That's what's so exciting about her. She's like, I want a, an adventure to write about. So let's do something really stupid. As two young women, let's hitchhike around Europe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were constantly in terrible situations. We had to jump out of a moving lorry going on a hairpin bend in the Swiss Alps. Oh, my God. Where, and we, as we go, as it slows right down, they almost stop as they go around the corners because these are real, real Alps. And Annie went, get your rucksack. We're jumping out because wow. he had his hands all over her. She would always sit in the front, see, because uh, she thought she could handle it all. And then we're like, oh, we can't. <laughs> and that's when I was grabbing my rucksack and jumping out of the moving lorry that I was like, I don't think she knows best always. I should I keep this in the back of my mind to kind of maybe have another suggestion if she suggests something, you know. There was constant things like that. And a man who drove us into the middle of the woods. Oh, my God. And I was thinking, well, this is wrong. This is wrong. This is Little Red Riding Hood, you know. <laughs> This is classically wrong. And um, and then he went away, but then he came back. Oh, Lord, and it's a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. And what was funny was my sister went up to talk to him French because she'd lived in France for a year, so she was, you know, talked French, and she would all be trying to be sophisticated, <laughs> and I was standing behind her with a saucepan, right, <laughs> to put him over the head like a cartoon. And what it was, he said, because I remember hearing him say, cut a la man, and I thought, does that mean just a hand job? And she said, he said, I'd put money in the windscreen when I picked you up. So he was just annoyed, like we hadn't given the service he was expecting. Uh, and he said, so I've, you knew that that's what I was expecting. Oh, my Lord. But your sister sounds, oh, my God, she sounds fantastic. Oh, she was amazing, Annie. And, you know, books are still out there, Annie mm. Caulfield. And, uh, you know, I'm still raging that she didn't get longer. But it was, do you know what's weird is because she was different to me. She was very precocious always and to get on with life and get at it and be grown up and sounds mental. But I think did her DNA know? Is that why she was more advanced always and rushing at everything? Uh -huh. 
because she didn't have as long. No. You know, I know some people would think about God, and I thought, well, maybe somehow her body knew all along. She was cramming it in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And sort of rushing at things. I don't have time to research it. Let's just go. And she would talk about a big life. And I want to see all of the world and have a big life. (laughs) Well, how glad am I that I said, yes, put in number five. Oh, I'm so glad. Just gorgeous hearing about her. Thank you so much. It's lovely. But it's nice to talk about. Like you said, although it's upsetting, Mm -hmm. it's nice to talk about. Yes. You know, that's the person's with you. Yeah. Yeah. And this is a vibrant, lively, exciting person. Yeah. And you talking about her, people will picture it. I can picture her, you know, even though I don't know her. Yeah, yeah. I can picture this woman with a silver suitcase. (laughs) Going, I've got the job, I presume. (laughs) All these paintings all look the same. What's wrong with you, woman? You know, just brilliant. Fantastic. Okay, Joe. if you want to, you can put in something you want to get rid of, but, you know, it's up to you. My thing I want to get rid of is uh, is people saying, oh, you can't say anything anymore. <laughs> people saying, uh, oh, it must be difficult doing comedy because you can't say anything nowadays. And I've started to, I won't let people say it. And people go, oh, the woke brigade. I'm like, what do you think the woke brigade is? And what do you think woke is? It's a good thing. And I always say, well, what is it you want to say? And they will either usually say something that you go, yeah, well, that is sexist, that is racist, or that is homophobic, or that is misogynistic. So, no, you can't say that anymore. And there's a reason why. You know, and language, you know, people go, oh, I used to say it. Like, the example I had was I did it myself. I put up something on Facebook and I said, I used the word tranny. And then a friend of mine who's a comedian, Bethany Black, messaged me and said, Joe, that's actually really offensive. We don't use that term anymore. And I was immediately kind of outraged, but sort of thinking, hey, I've been on the marches. I'm on your side. How dare you think that I would not be on your side? I'm always on the underdog side. But then I thought, well, it's not up to me, is it? Of course. No. If that group tell you that that word is offensive to them and they don't want to use, well, take their word for it. Yes. <laughs> and do that. And I think there's a hot, and I hear it so often now, and people just use it automatically and they say, oh, the woke brigade. And I also think if there was, they wouldn't use military language. <laughs> I mean, the woke people, they're not going to say use something military. But it's the same as it was, you know, say 20 years ago, and they go, oh, politically correct, everyone politically correct mm-hmm. nonsense, you know, political correction gone mad. And you go, it's not. No. If you stop and think. So it's wanting people to just not be lazy. What is it you're actually wanting to say? And think about why you may not be able to say that and why... It's called something else, but political correctness and being woke, which is being aware Mm -hmm. of how other people want to be seen or labelled or talked about, then that is a good thing. Political correctness is a good thing, but they use it as a derogatory word because they don't think about it. But if you said to him, are you racist? He would say, no, I'm not racist. The amazing thing is how patient people are. People are far more gentle than people who have no reason to be involved in the debate at all. Yes. It's nothing to do with them almost. You know, yeah. the person is taking the knee in order to say, we, as a team, see me and my, this ethnically mixed group of people who all play together and are all mates, we're saying, let's stop being racist. That's all we're saying. Yeah. And we support that. So who's it hurting? Do you think he'll play better if you boo him? And it's being open to the change, which is a little more effort than not being open. Yeah. So, and also remembering that we were young and fought against things as well. So I thought, sometimes I don't know. Like when it became a thing, people want to be non-binary. 
and people want to identify as they. Mm. And, you know, part of me was like, oh, for fuck's sake, what is this now? I (laughs) I don't know what to call you. And then you realise, oh, that's okay to say, I don't know what to call you. And they will say, well, I would just like to be they. As long as I know, I don't want to be the older person who gets it wrong or causes offence, but at the same time, I think it's absolutely fine to ask and go, Mm. I don't understand this, explain to me. Okay, I'm on board with it, I just didn't know yet. And that's more effort than just going, ah, what a load of nonsense, isn't it? No. And the very fact that we find it complicated means that people who've come to the conclusion that that's what they want must have thought about it deeply Mm. and therefore to say, oh, it doesn't make any sense to me, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. You say, well... Give it a moment. Yes. And funny enough, I didn't realise, it only occurred to me the other day that I thought, oh, in a way, me and most female comics have been non-binary for years because it was always a thing, not so much now because there's so many more female comics and it's very different now, but it used to be if the compere said, and your next act, she's brilliant, the audience would go, hmm, God, it's a woman. You would hear them groan because they would think, oh, and I never blamed them as well because I thought there's not very many women and you might not have seen a good one. So I don't actually blame you for that. Mm. So it became a thing. You would, the most good male compass would say they. And the next act, they're brilliant. And he would say they. And I would, all I would say was, oh, please, just don't say I'm a woman. Just say they. And it was for a different reason. But I can understand. I sort of gave me a little inkling of thinking of why people don't want because they don't want any preconception about who they might be. Mm. So say, so call them they. Mm. And I thought, hey, I was ahead of the curve. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apart from when they said they are a wonderful comedian. The only people who call you comedians are old actors. <laughs> That's me. Uh, Nicholas Parsons always used to say, and you're a comedian. What is it you want to be called? And he'd be quite cross if you said just comedian. He'd go, but you are a comedian. <laughs> no, okay, oh, Nicholas. bless him. Yeah. He was such a charming man to always let him say whatever he wanted. Yeah. Yes. The other phrase that you often hear, which is, look, look I'm offensive about everybody. Mm. And you go, well, at least you admit you're offensive. <laughs> <laughs> those people and those attitudes go straight into a little special box in the time capsule and we lock it away. Yes. But it's been really fantastic talking to you. And how lovely to hear all the things you want to put in there. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, without whom this podcast would be, well, it would just be me telling naff anecdotes, so thank goodness for Joe Caulfield. If you enjoyed it, then do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. In fact, wherever you got this podcast, because they've definitely got more. We also really appreciate it if you take the time to rate us by clicking on the number of stars. Yeah, a friend of mine apologised to me the other day because he thought one star was the top. So, he's buggered up our ratings. Anyway, a few five-star ones wouldn't go amiss. Thanks. Some podcast outlets give you the opportunity to write a review of the show, and they really are read, I promise you. Well, by us, if no one else. You can follow me or my time capsule on social media, where you'll find lots of posts about what we're up to and what's coming up. The theme tune, available on Spotify in full, was written by Pass the Peas Music. This was a cast-off production for Acast. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. So, bye for now. I'll be back with you very soon. Unless, of course, a big theatre job comes up or something, and I have to take a sabbatical. I mean, I'll try to find the time. 
time to do more podcasts, but you can't blame me, can you? I mean, theatre, well, it's in my blood, like herpes. Yeah, I was born in the theatre. Actually, it went down so well, my mum kept it in the act. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.